You're listening to the Redeeming History Podcast, Season 1, The End of the Age, brought to you by Rebel Alliance Media. episode, we talked about some of the leaders of the rebellious faction, the Zealots. We learned of their founder, Judas the Galilean, his son Menahem, and Eleazar, son of the high priest. In this episode, another Zealot leader comes to the forefront, John of Gishkala. From the very beginning of Josephus's career as a military leader, John was a thorn in his side. He attempted to usurp Josephus's command as general of the troops in Galilee, but to no avail. One of his main weapons against Josephus, aside from armed conflict, was to accuse him of being a traitor and of turning to the Roman side. We know that this indeed was what would eventually happen after the Battle of Yodfat, but John was making these claims months prior to that. And not only that, Josephus is the one who records the claims being made. We will likely never really know when exactly Josephus planned on deserting to the Romans, whether it was in that cave in Yodfat or months earlier, as John claimed. But regardless, John used these claims to differentiate himself from Josephus. John was a loyal Jew, a zealot, dedicated to the liberation of its people from Rome at all cost. Our last episode concluded with Vespasian having conquered Galilee and all the other surrounding areas of Judea and beginning to march directly on Jerusalem. John of Giscala now enters the city trying to claim that it is because of a tactical retreat. Most of the people realize that this is optimistic at best and don't really buy it. So John has to convince them that war with Rome is still the best option. Quote, John, however, went around inciting groups to war, portraying the Romans as weaklings who, even if they had wings, could never clear the walls of Jerusalem. They had already experienced difficulty in subduing the villages of Galilee, he claimed, and had worn out their engines against these walls. The young believed him and were incited to take up arms, but the old and prudent mourned over the future. Jerusalem was now divided into two hostile factions, the enthusiasts for war and the friends of peace. Indeed, the whole province of Judea was torn by civil dissension, as the parties for peace and war fought for supremacy in every city. Whenever the people had a respite from the Romans, they attacked each other, leaving families and friends divided." As we have previously mentioned, although the Romans are the obvious, looming, existential threat, the infighting and civil war amongst the Jews themselves is just as much to blame for the final outcome as anything or anyone else. With the conflict increasing, the number of brigands, bandits, and pirates throughout the land increased as well. And with Jerusalem being the last remaining Jewish stronghold, these all piled into the city 
at once. They committed robberies and murders in broad daylight, and in particular against many of the leading citizens. All of these zealots together grew so bold that they overtook the temple and turned the holy place into a fortress, and they even assumed the right to appoint the high priest. They appointed low-born men into that and other offices to try and gain support from the common people. However, it seems as though they may have gone too far. Josephus records that it was at this time that the general populace was finally ready for rebellion against the rebels. They wanted the zealots out. Ananus, the former high priest who was removed from that position by King Agrippa for his unlawful execution of Jesus' half-brother James, of all things, was appointed by the people to lead them against the zealots. Quote, Ananus hastily collected the citizenry, who, though superior in numbers, were inferior to the zealots in training. Both sides fought with the greatest fury and the slaughter was enormous. The zealots finally had to retreat into the temple, Ananus and his party rushing in with them. Losing the outer court, the zealots fled into the inner and closed the gates. Ananus decided it was wrong to attack the sacred gates and introduce unpurified crowds, and instead stationed 6,000 armed men to guard the porticos." Unquote. This is not the first time that we have seen what looks like a potential end to the hostilities be right around the corner. This time, those hopes are shattered by the aforementioned John of Giscala. This is episode 8 of the End of the Age Civil War. Josephus writes, quote, The ruin of Ananus and his entire party was due to John. This crafty man, always plotting for despotic power, pretended to side with the populace. Unquote. John was able to convince Ananus that he was on his side and even became a trusted member of his council. He was convincing enough that Ananus chose him to be the one to negotiate with the zealots. John was able to convince them that Ananus had sent an embassy to Vespasian and the Romans with an offer to surrender the city, and that tomorrow he was planning to enter the temple and attack the zealots. He said that their only hope was to appeal for external aid of their own, and hinted at help from the Idumeans. After short deliberation, the zealots agreed. The Idumeans, or Edomites, were conquered about a century and a half prior by the Maccabean Jewish leader, John Hyrcanus. The same John who conquered Samaria and destroyed the temple at Gerizim. When Hyrcanus conquered Idumea, however, he did something unprecedented for a Jewish ruler. He instituted mass forced conversion to Judaism. It seems as though most of the Idumeans were willing to comply, and one of those original converts was the paternal grandfather 
of Herod the Great, the future king, himself, an Edomite. So when the Zealots reach out to the Idumeans for help now at this time, they are, in a sense, reaching out to their fellow brethren Jews. The Idumeans answered the call and marched to Jerusalem with 20,000 men. Ananus shut the gate to the city and attempted to negotiate with them. He denied any negotiations between himself and the Romans, which, remember, was a lie concocted by John Giscala, and he then gave the invaders three options. First, they could join him in fighting against the rebellious zealots. Second, they could enter the city unarmed and act as a judge between the moderates and the zealots. Or third, they could just leave. Quote, But the Idumeans would not listen, and one of their leaders replied that they had come as true patriots against men who were in a conspiracy to betray the land to the Romans. Here before the walls, he said, we will remain in arms until the Romans are tired of listening to you or you convert to the cause of liberty. Unquote. As blustery as they may have been, the Idumean army was not strong enough to assault the walls of Jerusalem, and they were apparently surprised to find out that Ananus and his forces were stronger than the zealots trapped inside the temple. This made many sorry that they had even come, but on the other hand, they were too proud to pack up and leave without having accomplished anything. And it just so happened that there was a terrible raging storm that night, and the zealots debated about different ways they could help their allies who were exposed outside the city walls. Some wanted to fight through Ananus's sentries and open the gates, while others thought that that was too rash of a plan because it had little to no hope of success. Nevertheless, in the end, the decision was made to try and open the city gates. But because of the storm, the sentries were either asleep or finding shelter, and they were able to cut the bars on both the temple gates and the city gates with the wind and the thunder masking any noise. What happened next is one of my favorite pieces of writing in Josephus's histories. Quote, the Idumeans, supposing that Ananus and his party were attacking, grasped their swords until they recognized their visitors and entered the city. At the request of those who let them inside, the Idumeans first marched to the temple to liberate the zealots. Some of the sentries were killed in their sleep, and then the entire force was roused and snatched up their arms in defense. As long as they thought only the zealots were attacking, the guards fought with spirit. But when they discovered that the Idumeans had invaded, most of them threw down their arms and gave way to lamentation. A few of the younger ones, however, fencing themselves in, gallantly fought the Idumeans and, for a time, protected the weaker crowd, whose cries alerted the rest of the city. But the people were too frightened to help them, as the zealots joined in the battle cry of the Idumeans, a din that added to the howl of the storm." Morning came, and along with it came 
8,500 corpses from the slaughter, including Ananus. Soon, another 12,000 of the young nobility of the city were also tortured and killed, and the city was completely looted and ransacked. However, the Idumeans were there under the pretense that Ananus and his party were traitors to the Romans and enemies of liberty. And when the zealots began conducting fake trials to execute the wealthy in order to plunder their riches, the Idumeans saw the true colors of the zealots and began to regret ever having come in the first place. And when they eventually left the city, the citizens thought that might have brought some relief. Instead, Josephus says that they, quote, acted as if freed from their critics rather than deprived of allies, unquote. The killing, looting, and torture only increased. News of the civil disorder reached the Roman army, and many urged Vespasian to attack the city immediately. Vespasian replied, quote, This would instantly reunite the Jews against a common enemy. If, however, they are left alone, they would go on destroying each other and give us an easy victory. God is a better general than I and is conferring victory on the Romans without risk." Unquote. And he wasn't wrong. A few months later, in March of AD 68, Vespasian would begin the final march toward Jerusalem. By June, Josephus says, quote, the whole country was now overrun, and all exit from Jerusalem prevented. Those who wanted to desert were closely watched by the zealots, while those who did not yet favor the Romans were confined by the army, which hemmed in the city on all sides." Unquote. Then, as if providence would have it, News reached Vespasian of Emperor Nero's sudden suicide. This event began what is now known as the Year of the Four Emperors. AD 69 would begin with Nero's immediate successor, Galba, as emperor. As his original orders were from Emperor Nero, Vespasian did not want to proceed with the attack on Jerusalem. The army retreated back to Caesarea, and he sent his son Titus and King Agrippa back to Rome to get orders from the new emperor in regards to the Jewish situation. While they were en route, however, Galba was assassinated and replaced by Emperor Otho. Titus decided to return to his father without going to Rome. Josephus says, quote, while the empire was in such flux, they refrained from carrying on the war, thinking it unwise to attack a foreign country while in anxiety over their own." Unquote. In reality, Vespasian was using the time to make his own claim to the throne. Due to pressure from his rival Vitellius, Emperor Otho would himself also commit suicide, 
leaving Vitellius as the new emperor. Then in July of AD 69, Vespasian, backed by his legions, would march on the city of Alexandria and claim himself to be emperor of Rome. On December 21st, after Vitellius was killed by some of Vespasian's men, the Senate also declared Vespasian to be emperor. The year was still AD 69, the same year that saw three other men come and go as emperor of Rome. The Judean campaign was no longer Vespasian's main concern. He had an empire to run, and so command of the legions and the responsibility of quelling the Jewish rebellion were now left to Vespasian's son, Titus. In the next episode, we will see that once again, because of the Jewish factionalism, the zealots had squandered this opportunity to prepare their defenses and instead only assured their destruction and defeat all the more. 